0: We're in. If anyone pays attention to, I, I don't know if anyone reads my, e- my weekly emails, but <laughs> if you do, and you actually <coughs> open the bulletin part, this is a completely different bulletin, and uh, there's a reason for that. I I have two phases for my um, sermon construction, actually three phases, but two, two main phases. Um, one's my construction phase, and the other is the perfection phase, and the third, which is throughout both, is the prayer phase. But... Um, as I was writing Acts 19, I kept preaching in my construction phase Acts 18. So I thought, well, <laughs> if I'm preaching Acts 18, because it was on my... Paul says in 18, he's in Ephesus, I'm going to come to Ephesus. And in chapter 19, he comes to Ephesus. So I kept referring back to his promise. And I thought, well, why don't we look at the initial promise? So that's why things have changed around. It's a brief passage a lengthy sermon. I'm trying, I, I, I will try not to preach what I actually wrote, but we'll see. Acts 18, verses... Uh, where are we? 18 through... Um, 21. He, hear the Holy Word of God. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brothers, put out to sea for Syria, and with him were, were Priscilla and Aquila. Centuria, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow... They came to Ephesus. He left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent. But taking leave of them, saying, I will return to you again if God wills, he set sail for Ephesus. That's the reading of the word of God. May God bless it and extend his kingdom and edify his people. Let's, let's pray. Lord God, today is the day that you have made. We pray that we would rejoice and be glad in it, that we would use this Christian Sabbath to commemorate, Lord Jesus Christ, your victory over death and the grave for your people, and that in you, Jesus Christ, you who are the super overcomer, we are overcomers. And it's our faith in you, our Christ who has overcome, that will enable us to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. Show us, Lord God, Uh, as it is true that you are a good God, and your plans for your people are always good, even when the goodness sometimes hurts. Have mercy upon us, Lord. Glorify thy name in all the earth. Amen. Today, I, I don't know whether I'm going to call this an excursus or a topical. It's something like that. I want to look at, if you look at verse 20, which is really what I was wrestling with, we're going to look at, as the as the title says, what's the title? Uh, the Will of the Servant the Will of the Master. What we're looking at is the Apostle Paul says he wills something. You have the will of the Servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, I will if God's God wills. So we have the will as represented by the Servant of God, and then we have the will of the God of the Servant. And that's the main teaching. And if you look at a doctrine or a teaching, and you try to pull it apart like an onion within those statements which i'll try to extrapolate some of them in the sermon you have a number of related truths so you have the recognition of god's will which is necessary you have the notion of the submission to the will of god and in submission to the will of god it's in those various ways that he expresses his sovereignty over us In, in in other words in relationship to what goes on in providence but also those subordinate leaders that he's placed in family and church and state so submission to the will of god then coupled within this recognition of the will of god to submission to it it's the study of scripture where god reveals his will to us in scripture and then the other thing i think paul is referring to is the study of the book of providence to see what god is bringing into our lives such that we would discover the will of God and we would submit to it or joyfully consent to it. Something like that. And then also, also related to what we're looking at in this excursus on the will is the Apostle Paul understands, he acknowledges, understands and rejoices in his calling by the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows who he is. He he knows he is a sinner. He knows he is a sinner that has found salvation in Christ by the free grace of God. And he knows not just generally that the gospel is applicable to him. He knows that he's a gospel minister. And so his understanding of who and what he is and why he is affects his will. And it affects how he understands God's will. Um, Our brother prayed it. It was, I thought, very poignant to me. to the, the idea of to lighten his load. When we're looking at the will of God, um, the Bible says, and people use this phrase, this passage sometimes flippantly, Romans eight twenty eight, all things work together for what? For the good. But that doesn't mean all things are pleasant. So when we get to the submission to the will of God part, we are His children, but we're His servants. And as God's children and servants, we are to submit to to acknowledge His will and to submit to his will for our life like a creature to a creator, but then like a son or a daughter to a loving father. And we're to do so freely, willingly, and when possible, joyfully. And I'm, I'm thinking in Deuteronomy chapter 8, where God says, I'm going to have you on a 40-year hike. And this is so that you will live on my will, and you will acquiesce to my will. But it's not always possible as a Christian to rejoice over in God's will for our life. It's not always possible. There are times when it is God's will for our life, Paul experienced them, you experienced them, I experienced them, when it's God's will for our life to suffer. Am I not right with that? This is a Philippians one twenty nine. It has been granted to you to believe, but it's been granted to you to suffer. So there, there are well-meaning Christians, I'm sure, they come and say, well, you, the, James says always rejoice. And so when you're, so you're going to the to the grave of a, one you love, you're always to, to rejoice. Beloved, that's silly. It's a misuse of the Bible, and it's, a, it's, it's an abuse of another brother or sister in the Lord, is what it is. There's a time to weep, and there's a time to rejoice. When God's will for us is to go through a fire, to be in the affliction, a crucible, then... The, then the, the right response is to weep. And it's to weep believingly as unto the Lord. And to, to recognize that, that phrase that, uh, that uh, Romans 8, 28. Even the sad times, when it's God's will, that's an expression of his goodness. He's going to conform us into the image of Jesus. I, I want to say this. As we're going to look at this business of God's will for our life, I've quoted this before. J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer says this, is, so when I'm going to talk about God's will in reference to the servant's will, you may be thinking, well, such and so has happened to me, and I, I am not reconciled to, to that, that will of God, and I don't like it, nor will I ever like it. Um, beloved, J.I. Packer says this is very pithy. Once you become aware, this is the believer. Once you become aware that the main business you are here for is to know God, then most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Let me read that again. Once you become aware that the main business you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. So that means when God's will is to put us in a crucible, even that crucible is designed to conform us into the image of Christ, that we would know God, we would be be known by God in an increasingly uh, loving, experimental way. So we're looking at the recognition and the submission by the child of God to the will of God. Now, I will say this. The only way that we could recognize God's will for us, both in Scripture and in Providence, in His works, so word and works, and to love it, and to obey it, and to submit to it, is by faith. This is not bootstraps. Bootstraps don't work. Uh, So this is by faith, by the Holy Spirit gift of faith in Christ. We can say, even when times are difficult, God is good. My Heavenly Father is good. Will the God of heaven and earth not do right? His plans for me are good and right. And, And so it's by faith that we understand God's will, both in precept and in providence, and then it's by faith that we acquiesce to it, that we love it and we submit to it. And then I will say, related to that, to the person without faith, whether they're in the church or out of the church, because being in the church is not the same thing as being in Christ. So, without faith, you will never recognize the will of God for your life. Not rightly, not reading the Bible, not looking at providence. You will, not, you will not recognize it. You will not understand it. This is a Romans 8, 7. You, you can't understand. Romans 3, 1 through 19. First Corinthians, what is it, 2, 12 through 16. Only the spiritual man discerns spiritual things. The fleshly person, they, they, they can't understand. And, and, and so you will not be able to recognize, nor will you be able to submit. Because when we're looking at the, the aspect of, of God's will it brings in the notion of God's lordship. And this is something that the fleshly person, the unconverted person, they, they will not bend the knee. They will eventually, but they will not bend the knee to the lordship of God. Philippians 2, they will eventually, but it will be too late. So we're going to look at um, basically a topical on the business of the will. I want to start with a very brief definition. You may come up with a different one I'm using a definition which is common in the Reformed faith. Louis Burkhoff, if you have a systematic theology or you don't, I recommend buying his. Um, he, here's his definition of the will. Uh, the will is the power or the faculty of self-determination. The power or the faculty of self-determination or the power to, plan, uh, 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 to form a plan of action. Now, regarding the power or the faculty of self-determination, as regards to the will of God, um, it is also uh, the, his power of self-determination. But unlike man's po- power of self-determination in the will, which is created and gifted, God's will is part of his essence. It is, it is eternal. It's uncreated. It's, it's who he is, and it's, it's an expression of who God is. And so when we talk about the will of God as an aspect of who he is, this power of self-determination to carry out God's plans, my pastor, Pastor Hobbs, would always say, paraphrasing from the book of Isaiah, uh, men make their plans, but God carries his out. It's a loose paraphrase from a number of places in Isaiah. Is that true? Men make their plans, but God carries them out. That's exactly right. And so Nebuchadnezzar learned, the Holy Spirit taught Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, that God is God and man is not. And, it, and he talked about the will of God. He says God does whatever he wants to, to anything and anyone because he is the creator. He is the sustainer, the sovereign gov- governor. And he's answerable to no one. This is a, a Daniel chapter 4. Now, when we talk about that kind of God and an expression of his will, his plan, his self-determining power, plan, even as Reformed Christians, it's a little overwhelming. And I remember my minister, again, to paraphrase my minister, uh, he quoted one time, God is so sovereign, he, he can take your breath away. And I know he was referencing the death of his first wife. So sometimes we talk about the sovereignty or the sovereign will or of god and we're too trite with it um he he is so sovereign he, he gives life and takes it away he gives health and he takes it away but so when we're looking about the will of god in one sense the will of god is utterly limitless no one can thwart god's will in one sense and in another sense god's will is also limited now you think well pastor did you just flip your wig did you somehow just... We're going to fire you at the end of the sermon. I, I, I promise I have not flipped my wig. It's two different ways of looking at the will of God. As regards to the creature, within the nature of God, his will cannot be thwarted. But as regards to himself, I want you to think of it. It's a little philosophical, maybe a little bit heavy, uh, heady. Um, God's will is limited within his own holy being. In other words... Uh, God cannot will to sin. God cannot will to sin. There are people that have fancy arguments. He cannot will to sin. He's three times holy. It's against his essential holiness. Think of another thing. These are philosophical conundrums that I think smart Alex love to come up and throw against God. Can God will to not exist? No, God cannot will to not exist because it's against his holy essence or his holy being. Does that make sense? So as regards to the creature, limitless. But as regards to himself, God does... His his limits are within his own blessed being. He cannot will to sin or will to... exist. I know it's kind of philosophical, but there are many mysteries within within God, within the Godhead, uh, in God and God himself. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, hidden things belong to me. So the revealed things belong to us and to our children, which is scripture and then providence. Um, but God has many mysteries in himself. So as regards to, um, to uh, his will, he does have limits in that way. Now, let me read to you something from Ephesians 1. This references the, the will of God in the will of his decree, his eternal plan, as a reference to what we see. This is Ephesians one eleven. This is one of the reasons I would be a Reformed Christian. Even when I was an Arminian, I wasn't really Arminian, I didn't. I didn't even know what an Armenian was. I just loved Christ, and I didn't. I didn't know that I didn't know. So that that I actually don't think there are a lot of really card-carrying Armenians. But that's just me. Um, there, again, I, I. Well, Ephesians one eleven. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. That's the will of God. Is utterly comprehensive. In regards to his decree, it's his eternal plan. Here's how we understand it from our secondary standard, which is a summary of our primary. What are the decrees of God? When you think decree, think plan. What are the decrees of God? God's decrees are the wise, free, holy acts of the counsel of his will. It's the will of God, whereby from all eternity he has for his own glory unchangeably foreordained whatsoever comes to pass in time especially concerning angels and men. So read Westminster Confession of Faith chapter 3 with all the proofs and then chapter 5 what our brother led us in which is providence. You have the eternal plan chapter 3 and then you have how God effects that plan in the work of creation and providence. So we're not robots. We're not, there are real secondary causes. It's a mystery to us. But there are real secondary causes. Now, as regards to the power of self-determination for man, we looked at the will of, for, for God. Will for man is also the power of self-determination. But it is a, it's a created ability and a gifted or a graced ability. It is the part of the image of God in man. I know we're fallen in Adam. And I know that the image is defaced. In, in, um, in a narrow view, we've lost true righteousness, true holiness, with dominion over the creatures. That's true. But in a broad sense, we still are image bearers of God. We're spiritual. We're religious. We're culpable. This is why even after the fall in Romans chapter 9, it, it, Hebrew, oh, come on, John, uh, Genesis chapter 9, there's still the death penalty for killing of man because man is still an image bearer of God in that broad sense. So sometimes you read Reformed writers and they're like, well, you're totally depraved. I agree with that. That's the narrow sense, the true righteousness, the true holiness, and so on. The broad sense is we're still spiritual and responsible and religious. So when we talk about the will of man as the power to self-determine, plan, and so on, it's part of the image of God in man. It's a spiritual thing. And then as regards to this ability, most theologians, and I read Reformed theologians, Consider the, the will of Paul says I will I I desire to go to Jerusalem, then I will to come back to Ephesus. That that power is part of the faculties of the human soul. Now, if you if you really want to dive into the deep end of the theological swimming pool, then you go get. I'll give you two resources. R. L. Dabney. I know he's a southern writer. He writes some stuff that are kind of scary, but he's a genius. The scary stuff I don't like, but the other stuff I really love. R.L. Downey's Systematic Theology on the Nature of the Human Soul. And then, um, what's the magnum opus of uh, Jonathan Edwards? Uh, Religious Affections. So read Religious Affections. Again, if you want to just dive in the deep end. On the will of man, it's an aspect of the human soul. Jonathan Edwards. Those two books will talk about the human soul having three powers or three faculties the ability to reason, to think, cognition, the ability to emote, to feel, and then the ability to will. So when we're talking about the will of man, it's an aspect, or, or a power, or a faculty of the human soul. Both of those writers, super interesting. You're gonna leave there thinking, oh, I thought I knew what I knew, that I, and you won't, because you're in the deep end. So we're looking at the image of God in man, an aspect of, of, of man's soul, now, when we're talking about will, obviously that brings in the whole notion of free will. and It's the fight between the Arminian, the, the classic Arminian, and the Calvinist. And even in our day, people use free will. Most Christians, and I don't think they're actually—I don't—I don't think they are they are properly defining their terms. Most people use free will um, in, a, in a way which is—I would say—it's what Adam and Eve really had. Adam and Eve had free will as created the way that most Christians use in for that matter, the way most non-Christians use it, as the power of contradictory choice. Adam and Eve had that. Human beings don't have that anymore. The power of contradictory choice. And what I mean by that is, Adam and Eve were created perfect, yet what? Yet mu- mutable. Now here when we're talking about the will of God, the will of man in this kind of topical, how do you get, and I, I don't know the answer to this, how do you get a perfect creature, Adam and Eve, perfect, no sin, how do you get them to be perfect, yet to be tempted to sin? How does that happen? For us, we understand easily how we're tempted to sin. We have so much flesh and combustible material, it's not funny, but how do you get a perfect being to sin? It did happen. I know the answer is perfect But mutable. Here's again our secondary summary of Adam and Eve with their power of contradictory choice. God, did man continue in this state wherein God first created him? Now listen to this. If you're a Presbyterian or Reformed, you think, well, Reformed people don't have this view of the free will. Confession of Faith, chapter 9. You read that. I want to say, article 1 through 7. Our first parents, you ready? Being left to the freedom of their own will, these are the Westminster Divines. They're they're not a bunch of flaming Armenians. These guys are card carrying, fire breathing Calvinists. Being left to the freedom of their will, through the temptation of Satan, transgressed the commitment of God in eating the forbidden fruit, and thereby fell from the estate of innocency wherein they was cre- they were created. So they lost it. So they lost the ability to free will, that power of contradictory choice, because they were the f- Adam is the first federal representative, and in Adam's fall, we send all, a New England primer. There are two books I want to reference in relationship to the will of man. They both teach the same thing, but you would think they were contradictory things. What's Martin Luther's famous book where he writes against Erasmus? Bondage of the what? And of course, we're all like, yes, Martin Luther beat up on Erasmus. Erasmus was a genius. You read Martin Luther's Bondage of the Will, it's four hundred and something pages. I mean it's it is again that we're we're in the deep end here. And what Martin Luther was saying is from Adam's fall, now man's will is is bound. We're dead. We are, man, fallen man is no longer free to will that which is and I'm gonna be specific here. Fallen man is no longer free to will that which is pleasing to God. Fallen man, left to himself, is not free to will, to repent unto God, to believe unto God, unless God does something to him. Because he's dead, because he's in bondage, that's Martin Luther's bondage to the will. That man's will is not free because of the nature. And then Jonathan Edwards, in his book, he writes the book, Freedom of the Will. And you think, well, is Edwards against Luther? Is Luther against Edwards? No, they're writing the same thing. So here's where, here's where Edwards would say, well, we, we are actually, our wills are actually, have a form of freedom within, within our nature. If you are dead to God, then you are, you are not free to do things which are Godward, Godwardly pleasing, but you are free to sin. The unbeliever who is dead in their sins and trespasses freely sins, freely rejects God, because it's within that fallen nature. Does that make sense? And then likewise, the believer, when he's been given a new nature by the Holy Spirit, they are now freely receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. They freely come to Jesus. This is where some hyper-Calvinists get it wrong. You Calvinists, or no, this is not the hyper-Calvinists. I think they've got it wrong, and so do the Arminians. No one comes to Jesus kicking and screaming. I know sometimes people say that. When you came to Christ, when the gospel call went out and the Holy Spirit gave you a new heart, Gave you new eyes, you came most freely, most willingly, because we have a new nature. So if the nature is dead to God, then you're dead to do things which are Godward, but you're alive to do things sinward. Does that make sense? But when you have a new nature, you receive Jesus Christ willingly. But with the believer, this is part of the difficulty of the believer, Paul, us, we have two natures. The unbeliever has a falling nature, but we have the born again, regenerate nature. And we also have the flesh. And that's part of the fight. Paul Paul says in Romans 7 and 1 Peter 2. And James says in James 4, our flesh has a will that says we want sin, but the Holy Spirit within us says you have a new nature which wants things which are holy. So we have a compete competition of two competing wills because of the two natures. But apart from God in Christ. Fallen nature sins freely, rejects Jesus freely, and is bound uh, to uh, against God, unless God converts. So, those both books, I recommend them to you. Now, what we learn when we're looking at Paul saying, I will, I desire to come back, I am desire to go to Jerusalem, if God wills, we learn, one, that God has a will, human beings, Christians, have a will, And I want to look at Paul's recognition of his own calling, who he he is as a creature, and who he is as a Christian, as regards to his acknowledgement of God's will, his loving it, and submitting it. Paul here has been traveling around in his missionary journeys. And he's converted, he goes to Syria, he goes to Turkey, he goes to Cyprus... He's been over to uh, Athens. He, gets, he leaves Athens. It wasn't a very fr- fruitful mission. He goes to Corinth. He stays in Corinth for a year, year and a half. And now he plans to go to, um, to Jerusalem to fulfill this vow. And he goes to Ephesus for a little bit. And then he plans to go back to all the Christians in the churches that he's established. God the Holy Spirit has established through him. This is his plan. This is his will. Remember? That power of self-determination. Okay, I'm going to go here, 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 here. I'm going back down to Jerusalem. And while I travel back down to Jerusalem, I'm going to be working the whole time. I'm going to go back over all of those areas where I already evangelized and taught and there are Christians there and I'm going to visit them and I'm going to minister Christ to them. That's Paul's will. One of the things that would help us as Christians regarding acknowledging God's will and submitting God's will is if we knew who we were. Our brother talked about the doctrine of assurance, of being in a state of grace, which I love. It's one of my favorite doctrines. If we knew, Paul knew, I'm a child of God. I have been saved from my sin. I'm a Pharisee, and now I consider that stuff dung, and only Christ, only his righteousness. So he knows who he is, and he knows what Christ has saved him for. And this is key. Paul knows that he's been called by the Lord Jesus Christ to be a herald of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he sends him to Jews, he sends him to Gentiles. Paul knows he is an international ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows that that's Christ's will for his life. So then what do we see Paul willing? I want to go everywhere and preach to everybody. He knows the will of Christ for his life. He, he, He knows his calling, he knows his commissioning, and he knows his gifting. And I would say this. We study other people. You know, it's called people-watching. When I went to college, there was a outside of the campus center, there was some stairs and stone stairs and you get a cup of coffee and then you look at people. You watch people do this. And then we do this in the church. Oh, look at you. Look. We're, we're better people-watchers than self-watchers. If we, could, if we could watch ourselves, know who you are in Christ. I'm a child of the King. I'm a daughter of Christ. I'm a son of God. In what God has called you to. What has he gifted you to. And that will influence your will. And your submission to his will in these things. And I want to look at in particular. What we see as Paul expressing his will to these Ephesians. And I mean the liberty of our will. Or the liberty liberty of Paul's will. In relationship to the, to the will of other people. He goes to uh, Ephesus. And he goes to the synagogue. He begins to teach the Jews in the synagogue from Scripture that Jesus is the Christ. And he gets a favorable hearing here. And they say to Paul, We want you. It is our will that you stay here and keep preaching Jesus to us from Scripture. That's what they say. It is our will that you stay here and preach Christ to us. Now, I mean who? I mean... If you are a preacher of Christ, a teacher, if you're a Christian, and someone says, you know what, it's my will for you to keep talking to me about Jesus. Can you keep telling me about Christ, the Lord of glory? Can you imagine? You would say, no, actually, that's not my will right now. But that's what he says. Here we have people that express their will. We want you, and we want you to tell us about Jesus, which is a good thing. And Paul amazingly expresses his own will, and he says what? No. You will that I stay, I will that I go. And I want to, I know this is a minor point to the passage, but I think it's worth bearing out. Many times, even true Christians, because we have the flesh, when someone else's will conflicts with our will, they want something we don't want we think that they're doing something wrong to us. If you say to a person, I want you to do thus and so for me, and they say, that's not my will, no. How does that go down with us? It doesn't go down well. When there is no sin involved, when there is no sin involved, when a person thwarts the will of another because it's not their will, when there's no sin involved, there's no sin. When Paul says, you will desire that I stay, I don't desire to stay. I have a previous obligation. It is not sin. We need to be careful, as Christian people, against the tyranny of another human being's will. Chapter 21 of our Confession, chapter 21, paragraph 1, article 1, article 2, on the liberty of conscience, it's either 20 or 21, one's religious worship, the the freedoms that Christ has purchased for us. There is such a thing as the liberty of conscience. It's a Protestant thing, by the way. The Roman Catholics do not have this. You can't technically be a cafeteria Catholic, though everybody is. You have no liberty of conscience as a Roman Catholic. You're bound to believe the magisterium and the Roman pontiff. But it's a Protestant concept that we are bound to the Scriptures hold our will. We, we, We are free Christ has made us free, and the only thing we're bound to is God's will as expressed to the scriptures. So if I could say, we have freedom of conscience, liberty of will rightfully understood, and we cannot play the tyrant against another person's will, because they have liberty of conscience, they have liberty of will rightfully understood. What do I mean? Us parents, we do this all the time. Our kids are little, and of course, we run the show, when the kids are little, at least if you were like us or like my parents. we run the show, because they're little, they don't know how to run the show. We err when our kid hits to be, I don't know what they are. Let's, we, let's say our, our child wills to study one thing at university, and we will, as a parent, they study another thing at university. And it's not sin. And the child says, I have no desire for your thing. And I actually have no gifts for that thing. I have a desire for the other thing. And I have gifts for the other thing. I will the other thing. Beloved, beware of playing the tyrant against another person's will. We are not the Lord of the conscience, we are not the Lord of their will. So when there's no sin, now there's disappointment on the side of the people that Paul says no to them, but there's no sin there. Does that make sense? When someone says you, you desire something, you will something for me, but I don't desire that. Many years ago, a, a brother minister said to, to me, I want you to go to Uganda. I want you to go to Uganda and I want you to preach in Uganda, and it's God's will for you to preach in Uganda. And I was really sick at the time. And I said, well, I don't understand this. God opened all the doors to send me to Pensacola. I love Pensacola. And he sent me here. And you're telling me, God is telling you that God's will for my life is to go to Uganda. Yes. Why hasn't he told me? Why hasn't he given me greater health? Why hasn't he given me these desires? Why hasn't he opened these doors? You see what I mean? So it's not just the parent that tyrannizes the child. We, we do it all the time. This is God's will for you. If there's no sin, we are free to choose those things which maybe will conflict with the will of another, and now when Paul says to them, "No, I'm not going to stay," it's not because he's being faithless to them. He's actually trying to be faithful to a prior commitment that he made concerning God, and that is in reference to a vow or an oath. He's actually taking a Nazarite vow, which in God's providence I'm going to preach on tonight. Shockingly enough, <laughs> uh, Numbers chapter six, on the Nazarite vow, one to twenty-one, something like that. Six, one to twenty-one. Paul takes a Nazarite vow. And he says, I can't stay because I made a previous obligation to God to fulfill this vow. And we'll talk about that tonight. But the principle that we learn is this. Our obligation to the will of God trumps our obligation to the will of other people when there's no sin. Does that make sense? This is in Acts 4 and Acts 5. Sometimes, because God wills something or we have a previous obligation to God we actually have to say no to the desire of another human being, even mother and father. So when there are competing wills and we have an overarching God's will, we have to submit to God's will rather than man's will. Remember the young guy that came to to Jesus and said, Lord, let me go bury my father. And what did Jesus say? Let the dead bury their dead. So what Paul is teaching these people principally in us is the will of God trumps everything everything else. There's no other creature that should own any allegiance to us that our acquiescing to the will of God uh, trumps everything. Rightfully understood. We should be careful because our sin is always looking, I'm sorry, mother and father, I can't help you because my money is korban. You can just starve to death. We have to be careful when we use the will of God card because our flesh will want to use it as a cloak for unrighteousness. And the other thing I'll just point out briefly, when Paul says, no, I'm not going to stay with you, I'm going to Jerusalem, notice that he leaves behind Priscilla and Aquila and also Apollos. So, and these guys are Bible teachers. So when, when we are not willing to do something, this is the benefit or the beauty of the body of Christ, Christ will raise up another servant. Christ will wait. If we say, I cannot or I will not, God, in his infinite kindness, can raise up another Christian servant to say, I will. They cannot, they will not, I can, and I will. All by God's design. And then Paul, when he talks about the will of God, when he talks about the will of God, it reveals to us the nature of God. Um, It teaches us that God is. Now, some of us have family and friends that are atheists. They would be... Propositional atheists, I'm making a distinction between a propositional atheist and a practical atheist. A propositional atheist says there is no God, he watches the Hawkins-Dawkins, and then he tries to do those arguments. A practical atheist is they say there's a God, but they live like there's no God. Beloved, when the Apostle Paul says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I'll come back if it's God's will, he's teaching necessarily the doctrine of theism that God exists. And I would argue by implication. The doctrine of Trinitarian theism, gods that don't gods that don't exist don't have wills. So when we're we're looking at here, this is the believer who knows that God is. He knows God; he's known by God. So it's a test. It when when we when we acknowledge the will of God, it's an acknowledgement that our God is Hebrews eleven six. And the other thing that it it represents to us is the personality of God. We talk about God having. Person, God is a person, God has a personality. Uh, uh, He he thinks, he acts, and God come in the flesh, emotes, he feels. This is in contrast with uh, pantheism. What's pantheism? Pantheism is the spirit of God is everywhere, it's in the trees, that God is just this nebulous force. That's not true. God thinks, God acts, God wills. It's person, it's the personhood, it's the personality. So he exists, he is a real person, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three divine persons, one divine Godhead, and we see that not only is it against atheism and pantheism, it's against deism, and deism is this view of like, don't get me wrong, I believe that God exists, but he's not intimate, intimate. No, he creates everything, and then he establishes some kind of created mechanical order where things are self-perpetuating, and then he goes away. He's not interested in your life. God, God just, what do you mean God's doing? No, no, God's not doing anything. He created and he's, he's far away, and this is, just, this is just mechanical things. That's not true, beloved. That's, that, that's a lie. And we're susceptible to that, and it's completely depressing. God, God's man here recognizes God's will is intimate. He's intimately involved. There's nothing that happens in your life apart from the will of God. Nothing. I'm losing all my hair. I've lost all my molars. You have 12 molars. I broke them all. All gone. But the Bible says that a sparrow doesn't fall from the, the, the sky to the ground, but by the what? The will of God. Your hair doesn't fall out of your head. Your, mouth don't, your teeth don't fall out of your, your mouth. But by the will of God. He's intimate. And this is what Paul is teaching these guys just by implication that our God is intimate, universally active on the whole planet. And for the believer, it's good. And the good is conforming into the image of Jesus. And when he says, I'll come back if it's the Lord's will, this is what we love to talk about in the Reformed camp, which is the sovereignty of God. This is an aspect of God's sovereignty. Sovereignty, sovereignty like sovereignty, not just like fighting with people on the internet because we think we know more, which is, if we do this, just, a proud Calvinist is an oxymoron. It's First Corinthians 4, 7. Why do you boast about anything? If you're a Calvinist, you say, God gave me everything, right? You stupid Arminians, I know more than you. If you know more than anyone, which is ridiculous to say, you're going against your first principle. It's all gift, and so when we talk about the sovereignty of God, God is master. And he's governing everything. And the way that we discern the will of God, and this is guys write books on this. I can save you a lot of money. You don't have to go to Books A Million. CBD is not worth, no, CBD, yeah, you can still find stuff in CB, CDB, CBD, Christian bookstore distributors. What's the other one? Family Life Way. whatever I don't know what it is. You can burn those places to the ground. There's not anything except the Bible that's worth anything in them. Maybe a couple of commentaries by Matthew Henry. But, When we're talking about the will of God, God reveals his wills to us in two ways. Theologians will refer to it as uh, God's preceptive will or his revealed will. That's scripture. And then they'll speak about the the will of God as, as his decretive will or his hidden will. That's his plan that we see worked out in providence. Now, when... I think Paul's talking more about his, uh, th- th- what he sees in the work of Providence, but let's talk about discovering God's will for our lives in His preceptive will, in his revealed will. most of the conundrums that we have. Well, oh, I don't know, I don't know. Should I marry? Let's, let's just use the example. We have a Christian Girl, a Christian young woman, and she says, "Is it God's will that I marry this young fellow that I meet?" And then you say, "And then we'll give her the Bible. And we'll say, so is the young, you're a Christian, yes. Is the young fellow you met, is he a Christian? Oh, no, he hates Jesus from, from the get-go. And then, but it is, is it God's will that I Because we met together, we're in the same class. Is it, is it God's will? What's the answer? No, it's not God's will. Why? Second Corinthians six fourteen through 18. No. First Corinthians 7, I don't know, verse 34, 35. Marry only in the what? Lord. And then when you blow off God and you marry, now is it God's will that you stay married? Yes. <laughs> See how this works? <laughs> I don't know. What should I do? I don't know. So a lot of us trying to figure out God's will, we would, we would not have the difficulty if we spent a lot more time in the Bible. And I don't mean your Bible time, the five minutes in the morning, check, uh, check. I mean, what do you What? Search, search, search. Pray, pray, pray. Uh, many years ago, I've used this as an example, when I was a carpet cleaner, I'm cleaning the carpets, and I, of course I'm telling everybody about Jesus, and the lady said to me, I'm a Christian too, and I'm just trying to discover God's will for my life. I'm like, what are you, she said, I just want to know, is it God's will for me to divorce my husband? I like, oh lady, I don't know about this. And so I said, well, I have a couple questions for you. Did he cheat on you? No, he didn't cheat on me, I know, I did. that's okay, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, no cheating, I said did he desert desert you no he's sitting at the he's on the couch next to me at night he did desert me that's a 1 Corinthians 7 I said lady I can save you a lot of time he's yours <laughs> so you see searching god's will and sometimes it won't say to us the exactitudes it will give us the principle should I go? Is it God's will for me to go to church on Sunday? Are you in the hospital? No. Is your wife in the hospital? No. Yes, <laughs> it is God's will. <laughs> because the Bible says in Hebrews 10, Now, if you say to me, is it God's will for me to wear my white socks today or red socks today? This, we move out of the realm of discovering God's uh, uh, will for us in Scripture, because God doesn't tell us in Scripture, whether he wants us to wear the white ones or the red ones. Now we go over to what I think Paul is saying, if God providentially provides me to come back, I'll come back. Now here's my question, and here's how we discover how you should wear the red ones or the white ones. Uh, We know that it's God's will to clothe us. That's Matthew 6. Here's the question. What color socks do you own? I own the red ones. Then it's God's will for you to wear the red ones. See what I mean? We tie ourselves into knots when it is not quite as tricky as that. And now, when we deal with the concept of sin and God's will, that mystery will be resolved in heaven. Paul is really saying, I desire to come back. I'm going to plan to come back. If God opens the doors providentially, reading, reading the book of Providence, I will come back. Now, I will say this as regarding discovering the will of God and, and, and submitting to it. When you're saying, well, Pastor, you've given me a couple of cute ex- examples, of course we can come up with 50 million different examples that could, could perplex me. Here's what I would say. If you're saying, what is God's will for my life? The first thing that we need to do is ask ourselves, is this thing permissible from God or is it permitted, uh, prohibited from God? So, it, is it God's will that I rob the Swanee Swifty today? No. Because the Bible says don't steal. Right? So when we're looking at, is it God's will for me to do this, go to the Bible and ask the Bible, is this sin, is this approved or disapproved? If it's disapproved, then it's not God's will for you. That is simple as that. If it's approved, it may be. And then do you have a desire for this thing? Are you gifted, like the Apostle Paul? I am a preacher. I desire to come back. Now here's the other thing. Sometimes we're not honest. We're, oh, I just want to submit to God's will. I just totally, God's will, Yeah. I'm going to get off the couch and I'm, going to just, I'm, I'm not going to get off the couch and I'm not going to pray about it. I'm not going to look in God's Word. I'm not going to study God's providence. I don't really want the thing. If we are honest about wanting God's will and desiring to submit to God's will, then we need to ask, seek, and knock and push through those doors and look through those doors. The Apostle Paul is looking around. Is there a closed door? Is there an open door? And sometimes Jesus closes a door and sometimes he opens a door, but he's trying to go through doors. He's trying to go through doors. So we're simply not being honest with ourselves. When we, I totally want God's will. You totally don't want God's will. If you're not studying the scriptures, if you're not praying, if you're not seeking, if you're not looking at what is God doing in my life? Is he guiding me? Is he, he is he leading me? Many of us live unthinking uh, lives. And when the last thing I want to talk about is The whole concept of submission to his will, our Lord and Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says this. In a case we're thinking, what happens if God wants pain in my life or to go places I don't want to go? Well, he for sure will. Think of Christ. Christ is in the Garden. He said, Father, if it be thy will, what? Take it from me. But if not, thy will be done and not mine. We, we pray this in the Lord's Prayer liturgically every week. Our Father which art in heaven, thy will be done. For the believer, we, are, we no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to our God in Christ. And the, the, the reflex of the Holy Spirit in us is we want to submit to the will of God because we know God and we're known by him. And I'm going to close with these three things. If you're still thinking, well, I, I, I don't know what God's will is for my life. I do. I do know what God's will is for your life, and I'm going to tell you. Here's God's will for your life. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You ready? Here's God's will for your life. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Beloved, as believers, it is God's will to bring us to Jesus Christ, and then Romans chapter 8, to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ, and then finally to do what? To bring us to live with him and to worship him and adore him. That's God's will and Father knows best. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.